WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. This is a really exciting episode. We're here for episode 100. Thank you to all of our listeners who have been with us along the way. And to help us celebrate this, Cameron McLaren from Impact 89 FM Sports Team is here to host this episode with us. This is because this episode will focus on research of hockey statistics. Thanks for joining us, Cameron. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Cameron McLaren. I'm a sophomore at MSU. I am one of the hockey beat reporters for the Impact Sports team, and I'm an avid hockey fan and have been for the past 10 to 15 years. So I'm really looking forward to this. So joining us today, we have Derek Lasker and Brad Bahan. They would like to introduce themselves. Hello, my name is Derek Lasker. I am a sophomore here at MSU. My name is Brad Behan. I just graduated from MSU. I'm currently a graduate student at Boston College Sports Administration program, so glad to be here. So as a person who sees the actual play side of hockey in terms of seeing players actually on the ice and going from there, what led you guys to start doing your research and what are you guys specifically trying to figure out in terms of how CHL players are going to be used in the NHL going forward? Initially, with the project, we wanted to try and predict player performance. And you know, obviously, hockey is a very random game. Things can change in a split second. So we wanted to be, you know, get a ballpark number and their points per game average in the relatively first three seasons in the NHL using their junior data. For those of you who are unaware, the CHL is the Canadian Hockey League. It's a conglomerate of the Ontario Hockey League, the Western Hockey League, and the Quebec Major Junior League. So it's all under that CHL banner. And basically, it's the best junior league in the world. And we wanted to just see what predictions and what players from each league would be most successful in the NHL. So with that, the NHL is a very ever-changing league, especially with a lot of people have seen the role of enforcers decline. And the game hasn't since sped up with the lack of not necessarily physicality, but the sheer brute force of having multiple players on your team that could take and receive hits. So in terms of how you're seeing those players coming through the Canadian leagues, what do you think is going to be those factors that really push them into NHL squads within their first three to five years? Well, we definitely saw, at least in the data, that the Western Hockey League is a more physical league. More players are taking more penalties and there's more hits being thrown. The OHL is sort of a mix of skill and strength and grit. And the Q, or the Quebec Major Junior League, is a very skill-based league. I would compare it to a college league in the U.S. I compare it to Hockey East. Hockey East is very skilled, has a lot of good schools, and it's sort of regional. The OHL is very similar to the Big Ten and how they play. So most players that are NHL already are going to be coming from, I would say, either the O or the WHL, just based on the hit factor and speed. But you'll find a lot of good guys, like first overall pick this year, that's the New York Rangers, Alexi Lafreniere, coming from the Q, very skilled forward, and he should make an impact. But the majority of players are going to come from the O and, and, and the W straight away into the NHL. There's definitely more players coming from the OHL just due to population. You know, a lot of the population in Canada is centered around Ontario. There's still a decent representation throughout most of Canada, but there's a lot of players coming from the OHL that are coming in. I think about half of the players in our data set that we measured came from the OHL, and then the rest was pretty evenly split between the WHL and the QMJHL. But in terms of enforcers, 
a lot of times those players are still pretty prolific scorers in juniors. The example I'm thinking off the top of my head, I think would be Tom Wilson. He's currently on the Washington Capitals, if you're familiar with him. In juniors, I believe he played for the Plymouth Whalers, if I'm remembering correctly. And he produced points at a pretty good rate, not at the rate of a first overall pick, but still a pretty respectable rate for forward. When he was coming into the NHL his first few years, his skill set wasn't completely developed on the offensive side of the game. So what the Capitals did was they looked at his size and his body checking ability and they said, we're going to start you out as fourth line grinder. And then as you develop, we're going to allow you to develop your skill a bit more and then move up our lineup. So those are kind of some trends in our data. Like there are guys that even though they score in juniors, they don't score necessarily right away in the NHL. But your top end skill guys are going to going to be the guys that are putting up ridiculous numbers in junior. Your Connor McDavid's, your Sidney Crosby's, guys like them are going to be the guys that can jump into your lineup right away and top six forwards and prime offensive contributors right off the bat for your team. Yeah, and I mean, I completely agree with you. The three Canadian leagues are very different in how they approach the game, especially the QMJHL. It's a lot more stylistic league, but there's a lot more fast-paced players, highly skilled players. You got Lafreniere coming from Ramuski, which is a team in the Q, former team of Sidney Crosby, I believe. But it's a very entertaining league. And then you, the OHL is also a very good league. But for me, there's all in terms of predicting players in the future, a lot of the times, you know, those first and second round picks are mostly NHL ready. It doesn't matter if they're coming from overseas or if they're coming from the Canadian leagues or even so far as the Russian leagues. But those third through fifth round picks are usually where teams make their money. Those usually are their bang for buck picks that, you know, sometimes help them go to the Stanley Cup finals. And they're the greasers, they're third liners, they're second liners, they're fourth liners, guys that they bring up from the farm teams. So in terms of those like third through fifth round picks and going into being drafted by a team, what do you guys see? specifically from those players that are not necessarily NHL ready, but they play in the NHL for a couple of years and then kind of get their star chance in the NHL. Well, definitely, if, if you're going to build through the draft, that's the best way to do it and rebuild your team. It's better to build through the draft than by just signing a bunch of free agents and then trying to make it gel, especially if you're getting guys in the third and fifth round, like Detroit is doing right now, which is doing a very good job, signing free agents as well as drafting great players in, with their picks. I would even add to that, I would just build to the draft period. Unless it's a free agent that's really going to make an impact on your club, it build to the draft. It's less risk, in my opinion, than signing a player who's not fit your system. But I, I would say even with the drafting, after the first, I would say maybe 15 picks, you don't necessarily know if that player is going to make the NHL or not, unless it's a very good draft year like this year, for example. It's basically third and fifth round is drafting team needs and not necessarily the best player available. And after, I would say, the fifth round, it's the likelihood of those players making it into the league is very minimal. But yeah, you're right. The third and fifth round is, is definitely the best. You know, if you're a GM, this is where you make your money or get your contract extension. You know, the top 10, 15, sometimes 20 picks of the draft are the ones that are going to only picks that are going to be pretty much guaranteed to give you at least a couple years of NHL service. It's finding those gems in the fifth round or even like the second or third, like you said, where teams are going to make their money. 
find players that still exhibit the same sorts of qualities that you'd like in a first round pick, such as, you know, putting up a lot of points at even strength or playmaking ability, which has been shown to be the most easily translatable ability from level to level as you, you know, rise through the ranks. The most translatable is being able to pass the puck, make plays on offense. You can do that well at lower level. You should be able to do that well at any level. And so if you can see those types of characteristics in any given player, that's definitely the type of guy that you may want to take a shot at in the fifth round if they're still available. A guy I would look to for that would be uh, Braden Point of the Tampa Bay Lightning, who just won the Stanley Cup. He was a third round pick, I believe, and he still put up uh, pretty decent point scoring totals in juniors. And I think he fell during his draft year due to size, which has kind of long been a thing in hockey where size bias has been a thing where the smaller players have been sort of ignored. Basically, there have been in the past scouts said if you're not at least six feet tall, they won't even look at you. They won't even consider you for their team. But now that narrative is kind of starting to change. You're seeing smaller guys get drafted earlier and earlier. Last year in the draft, Cole Caulfield, who's currently at the University of Wisconsin, he went 15th overall, where in past years, maybe he wouldn't have even met a first rounder. You could say the same for a guy like Marco Rossi, who the Wild just drafted this year. They're both, I think, around five foot eight inches, but they're both, you know, very good hockey players. They put up a lot of points, and those type of guys are going to be the type of guys that you start to see getting drafted and making an NHL impact more and more over the uh, coming years. Thanks for joining us today, Cameron. We've really enjoyed listening to you all talk hockey, but for some of our listeners that don't know anything about hockey because there are some people out there, how about we backtrack a little bit? First, I'd like to just hear it simply. What are the factors that you're looking at whenever you're determining the player's success in the NHL? What we did when we looked at our data was hockey scoring can be divided into goals, assists, and points. Goals naturally being the times when you yourself are the one who puts the puck in the net. Assists being when you pass the puck to somebody who then scores the goal. And then points are just goals plus assists added together. But you can break down those goals, assists, and points situationally, depending on what's happening during the game, such as by even strength, power play, and penalty kill, which those type of situations happen when a player on the other team takes a penalty or when your team takes a penalty, which would naturally make it easier or harder for you to score. So what we did when we were collecting our data was we took the totals for all the players in our data set just over their entire junior career. And then we also took all of their point totals from the power play from when they were shorthanded on the penalty kill, and then at even strength, which is when no penalties have occurred. And then we also broke it down by how many points they scored during each of their seasons in the junior leagues, which would be their first, second, third, and fourth year. So our final model showed that total assists, power play goals, even strength assists, power play assists, shorthanded points, points during their second season in that league, and plus minus, which is just goal differential when that player is on the ice. All of those factors were significant in determining the points per game rate that any given player would score at the NHL level. 
it's like you mentioned, the game is often a mess of just random reactions and moves taking place during regulation. But whenever you're doing your analysis, how do you actually minimize the uncertainty? I know that, for example, sometimes when you run a random sampling simulation that you could actually inflate the uncertainty just by doing the simulation for too long, for example, like in Monte Carlo. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good point. The, the randomness in hockey is very difficult to predict and measure. Perhaps in the future with the puck tracking data, we'll be able to understand it more. But at the moment, you have to just sort of take that into effect. Just keep in the back of your mind that hockey is a very random sport and it's very difficult to keep the randomness in check. So that's why our final results, we were like, okay, if that player ends in that relative realm of uh, points per game, then that's a success in our opinion. So I think with future technology and as fast as the NHL is developing statistical methods, I I think you'll see predictions more and more become correct and more accurate. But at the time being, I think that we've done a great job with our data and, and our project and how we manage the variability. And it's a great point about the random sampling, but I don't think we could really do much with it at the moment, except to try and improve our model the best we can. Yeah, like Brad said, the more advanced types of data haven't been collected for as long as maybe we would have liked in order to get the perfect possible predictor type of model that we could have had. But considering what was publicly available we thought we got probably one of the strongest possible models we could have gotten. We did acknowledge in our project that there were a few main factors that we hadn't really taken into account that could be uh, confounding variables and account for some of the randomness in the data set, that being the age of the player, the team strength, the ice time that that player gets, and trades that occur. I'll start off by talking about trades because trades do happen In the junior leagues, it's not like college hockey where you commit to a college and then you're there for as long as you'd like. The CHL operates a lot like the NHL where they can trade you whenever you want. So especially with players that are between 16 and 20 years old that are so important for developing the skills that are going to hopefully make you a good NHL hockey player, a trade could either really help you or really hurt you. So that could be something that wildly influences how a player produces during that time span and then also how they end up developing into a potential NHL player. The age is something that we have been looking into to see if we can reevaluate because we had originally broken down, like I mentioned before, as their first, second, and third seasons in the junior league. But the problem is not every player is starting when they're the same age. And even though it's only within an age span of about five years, one year could mean all the difference in terms of both physical and mental maturity. For example, because players from Europe can't come over to the CHL and play there if they like. Just an arbitrary example from our data would be, which do you value more? A 16-year-old Canadian coming into the league and into the CHL and producing 50 points in 70 games or so? Or would you value that more than an 18-year-old European coming over? So there's a lot of factors to consider in that area that could be accounting for that randomness. So if we can reevaluate our model and account for age, which I think we've been able to do pretty well with the work we've been doing so far since we originally published this project, I think that the age out of those four variables that I mentioned would be something that we can probably account for the best. But the other things like the ice time data is not publicly available, so we can't really incorporate that in. 
Although I think that would definitely improve the model if it were available. But like I said, there's a lot of outside factors that kind of contribute to the sort of randomness that all in addition to the randomness of the game itself kind of make it pretty hard to predict. But as you see more data start being collected and published publicly, so people can look at that and incorporate them into predictive models, I think you're going to see the strength of these predictive models only increase as more data comes out and as time goes on. And just to add to that, with the European leagues, like for example, who's the Russian KHL and maybe a player, not in our data, but who is a very good player for New Jersey Devils, Nikita Gusev, played many years with Ska St. Petersburg, put up a lot of points over there, was superstar, is that he came to the league when he was 26 years old as a rookie, sort of like Artemi Panarin when he came in the league with Chicago. Those kind of players, you know, they're NHL ready. But some things could, can go wrong, like with Vadim Shipachov, for example, with Vegas, he played three games, got sent down to the minors, didn't want to get sent down to the minors and actually terminated his contract and left the NHL and went back to play for St. Petersburg. So you have to add into like the Russian factor to it, I guess, is what the NHL analysts call it, because they've done their work in the minor leagues over in Russia, and they don't feel like they should have to do that in the NHL. And I mean, fair play to them, but they can turn out to be some sort of a steal, like Gusev is on a $4 million contract for two seasons, and that's pretty good value for the Devils. You're right. It's important to take into consideration age as well. It would be good for your model to focus on your statistical analysis. Do certain factors have more weight than others? For example, if a player makes more goals than assists, would that be better? Also, what software are you using to do this data analysis? There are two different styles of players. You have your goal scorers. We call them snipers, but goal scorers. And your playmakers primarily are getting assists. They pass the puck first, then shoot. In a way, I mean, they're both obviously equal in terms of points. So one goal is equal to one assist in terms of points. But I think it's good to have a good, healthy balance of both players on your team. You want a good shooter on your power play, like Alexander Ovechkin on the Capitals. And you obviously want a good, want a good passer like Nicholas Backstrom, who's also on the Capitals. And they're also line mates. It's good to have a good balance of those players in any roster. And obviously, if you can build through the draft with them and draft, obviously, they'll be playing together a lot, a long time if you can get the right pairing. In regards to the software we're using, so we're using R&R Studio. It's a commonly free available statistical program. It's a great program, very easy to use. And then other statistical methods like Python or Java or anything like that is also very good to use. But in my personal opinion, I reckon it's the best by far. Yeah, we've had other interviewees on the show that have also used R to perform their stats analysis. One thing that I've been thinking about throughout the course of this interview, and you've kind of highlighted this a little bit, is the difference between hockey versus other sports. It's like you had mentioned in soccer, you can have people from the team being switched out every couple of like four to five minutes. But in hockey, it can happen all the time. What are the differences between hockey and other sports that warrant to give hockey a special treatment when it comes to doing these kinds of random analysis? The main difference that you may see between hockey and other sports would be that hockey is very free-flowing. The stoppages in play are less frequent than other sports may be. For example, if you look at football or baseball, those sports are very segmented where you can kind of isolate one play at a time. There's only so many different outcomes that can happen, like for one pitch, for example, either it's a strike or a ball 
or the player hits it and the batter hits it in play. And then from then it's either a hit or an out. So it's easier in other sports like those to break it down into sequences and determine what sorts of things determine what kind of outcomes. With hockey, that's like I said, it's more difficult because the play is so much more free flowing and there's so many different outcomes that can come from any given event, let's say. There's so many small things that go on that could have such a large influence on what the next play is going to be. So that's why I would say hockey analytics in relation to other sports, such as baseball, have kind of taken longer to develop is because of that more free-flowing style of the game and because of being able to subdivide the different sorts of outcomes into potential sequences and then like working yourself backwards of, okay, what determines when that's going to happen? I would also add to that with the baseball angle. I'm glad you brought that up, Derek. When when a batter comes up to the batting box, one of two things is going to happen. He's either going to swing the bat and miss and get a strike, or there's going to be a ball. Or actually, I guess, at a third, he could get a hit. In hockey, if a player is skating with the puck up from his own zone, there's a million things that he could do. He could pass the puck up along the wall. He could just skate it into the offensive zone. I mean, it's endless. So just to highlight the two vastly different scenarios in terms of statistics, and that's why Moneyball with uh, Oakland A's general manager at the time, Billy Bean, it caught on so well with him is because baseball is a very event game meaning every event is a single event and it's very easy to predict an event based off of numbers whereas hockey it's very difficult given the complete randomness of the game and free flowing of it we're starting to wrap up the episode but before we go i wanted to know where are you getting this data from it would be great if you could use a tracking software to analyze the players and the pucks but that would take a lot of coding does the chl provide this data to you or is it publicly available Great question. And the answer is yes, in terms of the data. And obviously, no, we don't have our own annual tracking system, I guess, yet. But the data is publicly available on the chl.ca website. You can go to there and grab all the three different leagues for the data. They go back many, many, many years. I think they go back to the 70s. So if you want to look at historical trends, it's all on there. And we have a website that you can visit. It's be put up in the description, but I'll just spell it out. It's M-S-U-R-M-A-N-D-S-P wordpress.com so you can check out our website and our project from this past spring semester you know that answer actually got me thinking a little bit about the data itself from what it sounds like you're just grabbing lists of text files that have a lot of data in it but i'm wondering do you also look at for example the video footage of the games happening themselves and do you actually do physical tracking of the data rather than just going off of what has been recorded in terms of goals and scores and assists for this project specifically we have not used video footage and physical data tracking but that is definitely something that you would want to incorporate in a lot of other different types of hockey analytics and analyzing different parts of the game. We figured because, you know, we were basing our project strictly on points production, we would just use the publicly available stuff of what we had because there's not a lot of publicly available footage and physical tracking for the junior leagues. There's some stuff out there for the NHL, but there's really not a lot of publicly available physical tracking for the CHL and a lot of other junior leagues yet. 
as of right now, that's more of a thing that teams kind of do. Individual teams will bring in statistics companies. One of the big ones is SportLogic. Another one is Instat, I think are two of the major players that a lot of NHL teams use to have those companies take video footage and take physical data. And then they kind of hand that over to the team and the team as a set of analysts kind of do their own sorts of analysis on it. But where things stand right now, there's not a lot of that publicly available for any freelance analyst to use on their own. So that wasn't really something that we could really incorporate into our project specifically. But there are a lot of good projects out there that analyze more strategy-based things rather than predictive models for translating from league to league with that sort of data. So in regards to hockey being compared to other sports in terms of sports analytics, in the NHL now, I know one of the main things that they're doing now is player tracking, which is player movement, speed, and then shot speed. But that's basically touching on the baseline of what sports analytics is and what sports analytics does. And so a lot of statisticians really look for what they do in the German soccer league, the Bundesliga, where they have expected goals for, expected goals against based off of chances. So in hockey, they have a similar system of where high quality chances are coming from on the ice and where your team is getting their best chances on the other end of the ice. But the main problem with looking at hockey from an analytical perspective is the game is so ever-changing. And take it for the Dallas Stars, for example. They're willing to give up high-quality chances every other night, every night, because that's how their system works. They've trained their defensemen to let a defenseman take a shot from the point that's just one-on-one with the goaltender, because the goaltender is going to save that nine times out of ten. It's just very hard to put that in perspective if you were to say, put that data into both Derek and Brad's data because determining player success based off of points, they may actually be very good point scorers on paper. Their expected goals and their expected chances may be super high, but based off the teams that they're playing or the style of the team that they're playing on, they may not be able to get that point production, which is why I believe the the game of hockey is so special is because it's very hard to try and prove something analytically on paper. But I think hearing Derek and Brad's analysis that looking at player performance in the minor leagues, it really can translate into playing in the NHL, especially after given a couple of years and maybe in the minor leagues to develop other aspects of their game. And I, I do really think that they've done a really good job in what they're trying to prove here. Thanks, Cameron. Appreciate that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up XG because that is the next big thing in terms of determining shot quality. And sometimes you'll have numbers from games that are like an XG of, say, 4.4, for example, and the actual goals that you scored were two. And people might say, well, you should have had four. Well, you should have, but the goalie was able to stop you on the other two goals. But yeah, XG is a great measure of shot quality and shot location. And I think that you'll see more accurate numbers of that when the NHL implements the puck tracking technology. Well, thanks to all three of you for joining us this morning on this really special episode of The Sci-Files. I think it's really great when you see this nice little relationship developed between science and sports, especially here for Chelsea and I. We really both appreciate that, especially. And thanks again for joining us this morning. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. It was a pleasure to talk about you know what we're doing and have these sorts of discussions. So thanks again. This was really fun. Thank you for having me. Was really looking forward to it. 
The Sci-Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Daniel Puentes on Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandrin, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. The Sci-Files can be found online on scifiles.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on Sci-Files, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at scifiles at impact9fm.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.